Welcome to episode number 159, Resolutions and Revolutions. It is that time of year again when we ruminate about what we didn't accomplish last year and make plans to try again this year. Resolving to revolutionize our lives is incredibly important to our spiritual and our mortal welfare. I don't think anyone doubts this idea, and making our resolutions is easy enough. However, the execution can be elusive. Now, I, by nature, am a scheduler and a planner. Yet even with a natural ability to make plans and to schedule my life accordingly, I have, in the past, consistently struggled to execute on those plans. You might think, well, welcome to the world of normal functioning people. And perhaps that might be part of it. But I can tell you that if you are planning and scheduling your resolutions, similar to everyone else, and you have mental illness as a companion, you are likely to fail. And not because of the normal things that cause failures with goals and resolutions. When you set out to accomplish change and you are contending with mental illness, you can't live by the same rules as everyone else. Yes, you can certainly use all of this scientifically and even the grassroots goal development techniques, but I can promise you that if you have episodes and symptoms during this year, you are significantly more likely to fail in your resolves. And that failure can and does cause a cascading effect. Individuals who suffer with mental illness cannot approach goal setting and planning in the same manner as their peers who do not. Mental illness will insert significant roadblocks if you attempt the traditional goal setting methods. Not that traditional methods cannot be used. It is that goal setting, traditional goal setting methods, work with brains and emotions that function in a normalized space and time. If you're going to set goals, and you definitely should, then you need some additional insight, understanding, and preparation to be able to achieve those goals. Let's start with mental illness itself. The first set of goals should always be about mental illness management. If you don't start with management, everything else will fall apart as soon as you crash into your first episode. When you set objectives for your management, there are a few things to remember. The first thing is that you're not going to be fully in control of many events within your environment, meaning life is full of surprises. Even though we know that fact, we regularly fail to plan for it. That is because of the wiring in our brain. Our brain is wired to predict the future so that it can guard against and prepare for that which is to come. The purpose is twofold. One, to avoid the shocks to our system that occur when something unexpected occurs in our life. We as mortals tend not to like the adrenaline rush, unless of course we are specifically chasing it. And two, our mortal mind naturally seeks the path of least resistance. Our minds naturally seek out economizing our efforts and even our mind. You can see both of these types of kind of preparation and execution when driving. For instance, when you are driving and someone close to you on the road is driving irregularly, you take notice, and your brain attempts to pre-plan what they might do so you know what you might do. You may not even think about it consciously, but once you take notice, the brain actually prepares. Now, the brain does this all the time. It attempts to project the past experiences of your life into the future so that you're prepared. In addition to preparing for the unexpected, the brain also naturally chooses the path of least resistance. 
If a lane of cars is flowing freely and our lane is stuck, the natural tendency is to move to that lane that doesn't have any resistance. Our brain will also tend to economize or minimize using the brain's one good processor while driving. So we might also move over to the left lane and just shut off our brains and really not worry about the other lanes. The problem with this projection and economizing or minimizing process is that the brain tends to stick to what it knows, which is its past experience. The brain doesn't like surprises. We all know what happens when something out of the normal course of life happens. Shaky, sweaty hands, elevated heart rate, significant energy increase. The body activates our fight or flight system. This also changes the way the brain functions. The brain moves almost instantaneously into a reactionary mode and higher level thinking is actually reduced to minimal functions. We actually can become almost animal-like in our nature. Now, our body doesn't like this state of mind or the body. And if it becomes too regular, our mental system starts to break down. Now, we can refer to this often as PTSD. The brain desires to minimize the use of the processor and avoid the fight or flight difficulties. And so its only real recourse is to project the past into the future as a form of prevention and protection. Now, our brain and body do this for a reason. It is part of the system of protections designed to keep us safe as individuals. However, for some individuals like me, who have in the past had serious anxiety, this system of projection can become problematic and oversensitized. Now, my mother has told the story that when we went into town, I had to know exactly where we were going and in what order it would occur. Any deviation caused a emotional meltdown, meaning my brain would cause an emotional outburst because its prediction system was incorrect. Surprises for me were a serious problem. Even simple scheduling surprises could cause a serious issue. Now, not everyone has this issue, but it serves to point out my first valuable insight into mental illness and goal setting. Our brain's future projection system is prideful. It wants to be right every time. One thing we can do to avoid the emotional meltdown and keep our minds on task is to train it how to deal with surprises. I first had to train my prideful projection system that it was going to be wrong frequently. Simultaneously, I had to teach my brain how to add the deviation or the roadblock into my schedule. Accepting the roadblock into my schedule rather than seeing it as an obstacle and crashing out of the course to what I was doing. One of the ways to avoid losing sight of my goals and failing has been to learn to add roadblocks into my planning. Now, I may not know when or where they may occur, but I expect them now, and I work with them to continue with my goal. If I had a goal to read the scriptures at a certain time each morning and somehow I wake up late, I don't fret about what happened. I quickly make a plan to include scripture reading at some other time. The first thing we must do when we have a mental illness to keep on track is to expect that you are going to be off track regularly and then learn to adjust around it. Now, some might say, well, that's no different than anyone else. Yes, but with mental illness, the off track may be a host of things that others would never have to deal with, such as an episode of anxiety or depression or, for that matter, even mania. 
emotional situations where we possess no desire to accomplish the goal, and even when our feelings might be contrary to accomplishing the goal, such as in a depressive episode. Normal individuals who fight through to the other side and accomplish the goal are often rewarded by the mind for doing so. That may not and probably will not be true with mental illness. We may have to fight day after day and have no desire to continue, or worse, our body may even fight it. The best way we can do, or the best thing we can do, is to plan for it. And if roadblocks come, we do our best to include them in our planning. Illness management needs to be a constant effort. And if we fall off the wagon for a couple days, that then leads me to my next discovery. I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell that talked about something important to goal setting in general, but actually very important to someone battling mental illness and attempting to set goals, what's called a short memory. He talked about two baseball players who had sufficient skill to climb into the majors. However, one of them had great talent and the other was good enough. The one with significantly enhanced abilities had a serious problem, a long memory. When he struck out, he allowed that failure to lead to another strikeout and then another. His inability to put aside one failure would lead to successive failures. Even with his great hitting ability and power, he never made it to the majors. The other player had a different approach. When he struck out, his attitude was of the nature that he could get a hit if he could just figure out the pitcher. He didn't see the strikeout as a failure, but a learning experience that gave him more experience that would allow him to eventually get a hit. For one player, the strikeout was a roadblock to future success and the other was a stepping stone to eventually being able to hit the pitcher. This type of mentality also deals with future, our future projection system in the mind. For the failed baseball player, the projection system saw each event singularly and as a failure. The prediction system then expected that the chance of failure was greater the next time because of the previous failure. For the successful player, each event was viewed from the perspective of eventually becoming successful with sufficient experience. The projection was not singular with increasing chances of failure. The perspective was more holistic, projecting each experience as something learned that would eventually produce success. So rather than immediate success or failure leading to future success or failure, the overall mental projection was eventual success coming from each experience. Now, we refer to this failure to failure as a short memory, but it is rather a manner of perception that informs our future projection system. Rather than a now or never approach, we learn to view things from an eventually perspective. This allows for roadblocks, mistakes, do-overs, mulligans, and bakes them into our projection system. We see this same type of thinking with Laman and Lemuel and Nephi when they attempted to get the plates. Nephi was of the nature that because God had commanded it, he just needed to find a way to get it done. And the two previous attempts were actually experience for him, where Laman and Lemuel were done after the first attempt. With mental illness, this approach is absolutely a must because the roadblocks and obstacles are significantly greater when your emotions are distorted by the illness. 
Now, my third discovery has taken much longer to understand, and this is because of the way our brain is wired. Even when we are diagnosed with mental illness and we understand that we have difficulties and limited capacities, our brain does not easily factor this into our future projection system, meaning our brain does not factor in our illness when it grades our goal attainment efforts. That prideful projection system simply cannot see that mental illness causes us to have serious difficulties with our desire to accomplish a goal, our energy to move it forward, and our ability to overcome surprises and setbacks. All it sees is that we didn't accomplish what we had planned to do. The difference between what we can actually do and what our future projection system expects us to do causes serious emotional pain and distrust. We can feel guilty, defeated, weak, unworthy, doubtful, and degraded. And to realign this system, this future projection system, we actually often remove the goal from our mind's projection system to avoid future guilt. Basically, we give up on our goals. Now, this is not about a short memory or even sticking to the goal with learned experiences. This is about retraining our minds to see that we deal with mental illness and we have weaknesses. This is about perfectionism in the negative or toxic sense. Now, in the New Testament, the Savior gives a parable of the talents. Most of us are familiar with the story, and I hope that you will forgive me for paraphrasing it. The story goes that a master gave three servants talents. Now, the scriptures state according to his ability. One he gave five, another he gave two, and yet another he gave one. The master goes away for a period of time and expects that his servants, having been taught by the master, will use the money wisely and bring back more than he received. Now, in the end, the five-talent servant increased the value of his talents 100%, and so did the two-talent servant. We also know that the one-talent servant did not use his talent to increase his master's wealth. The two servants who were given the, given their respective talents and invested appropriately were giving, given actually a very similar reward. Now, the one-talent person lost his reward and his ability actually to be a servant. But I'm actually not going to focus on this particular person. I want to focus on the two-talent person, the one who seems to be almost passed over in the story in a sense. While we are not told why the two-talent person was given only two talents, the master does seem to indicate that this was according to his ability at the time. I like to think of this two-talent person as a five-talent mortal having been given specific weaknesses by the Savior and the Father in order that he might learn or she might learn specific knowledge and gain particular experiences in the mortal world. I like to think of this person as having a weakness, such as mental illness. It was not that the two-talent person was really any different than the five-talent person, other than, specific, other than specific weaknesses were provided, that in mortality they would be a two-talent person. In pre-earth life, these two individuals were five-talent spirits, but as they entered mortality, each was given their own individual assignments and weaknesses, and expected to perform to the level of ability they received. The Master was quick to reward each individual based on their capacity to perform, and their performance. The two-talent person received the same reward as the five-talent person. The Master did not expect the two-talent person to produce five talents. The Savior fully knows the weaknesses, capacity, and difficulties He has given us here on the earth. He knows when we, ha 
when he has weakened our abilities and capacity from five to two, and he doesn't expect that we will perform greater than the two talents. However, our brain does not see it in this manner. Our mortal brain does not see our weaknesses, and it doesn't factor them into its future projections, unless we train our brains to do so. Now, I've spoken regularly about King Benjamin's sermon, where he states that we should not run faster than we have capacity or strength. When we do so, and when we allow our mind to project the five-talent person, and we run to this capacity, we run right into the wall of toxic perfectionism. Toxic perfectionism is the guilt that is derived from our mortal mind's prideful future projections and our inability to focus on our true capacity, and our inability to see our failures as experience rather than failures. It is also derived from comparison of ourselves to the five-talent person and our failure to achieve what they achieve. Each of us has a unique capacity to accomplish what the Savior has asked. He did not ask the two-talent person, who might have had a serious weakness, that he provided, by the way, to produce the five-talent level. How could that be? That would simply be unjust. To give someone a weakness, to learn specific character traits, and then to ask them to perform as no weakness ever existed, is against the laws of justice. The Savior can only require that they perform at the two-talent level. This doesn't mean that they are not reaching their full potential because they are because potential is based on their capacity. Both the five-talent person with minimal weaknesses and the two-talent person with a significant weakness both inherit the same exaltation. This is one of the major keys to setting resolutions and to work towards them. We each possess a level of perfection that the Lord desires we obtain. And we cannot reach our capacity by measuring our capacity against someone else. Salvation is truly individual-based on what the Lord has provided to us in strengths and weaknesses and capacity and to the mission to which we have been called. The problem is that our mortal mind doesn't see it this way. And so we often strive to perfection, overrunning our capacity and then crashing out of the race. And we do this over and over until it becomes toxic to our nature. And then we crash out entirely. We then find a reason to leave the gospel and perfection behind, believing that we could never have obtained it in the first place. The problem was not that we could not have attained it or lived up to our covenants. Our problem was that we have perceived our efforts through comparison to the five-talent person. So what is the answer to all of this mortal mind capacity conundrum? How can we know if we've succeeded, if every time we fail we give ourselves a pass on the guilt? The first answer is that we never gave up on our goal. We kept our resolve to keep on trying. Yes, we may not have read every day of 2023 or read the standard works, but we never gave up on the goal. We need that to be success because mental illness will at times cause our daily efforts, our daily goals to be out of reach. And that is okay. The second answer is that we still accomplished the purpose of the goal. We learned more about the Savior and his gospel, and we have grown closer to him. Sometimes we need to step back from the goal and understand exactly why we have the goal and its purpose. Rather than feel guilty, 
about what we have not done, we should feel good about what we have accomplished. The third answer is that we have avoided the toxic perfectionism paradox, where we have compared ourselves to others without considering personal capacities. We have run the race at our pace, and we have not overrun ourselves and completely crashed out of the course. We are still running and pacing ourselves based on our conversations with the Lord and what He feels we should be doing with our lives. We are on the covenant path and moving towards the Lord and exaltation. Finally, we have learned to be merciful to ourselves. We have moved from guilt and self-punishment to perceptions of feeling and feelings of happiness with what we have been able to accomplish. We have allowed mercy to have its full effect in our lives. Resolutions do not have to devolve into revolutions within ourselves as we work to become better and more like our Savior. He knows us and He knows our capacity. And we should trust that if we continue to work and guide our lives towards salvation and exaltation, He will provide the grace and capacity that we need to accomplish our mission and return home to Him. Now may the Lord bless you this week to see yourselves as He does. Until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do His.